You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 13. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Lord, as we look at the book of James uh, tonight, we ask that uh, its core message would uh, reach to us, that you would reach us as we read. We pray, Lord, that as we uh, consider the nature of true faith, that you would work faith in us. Real, strong, grounded faith, a faith that is not merely orthodox ideas, but a, a true trusting in you. We pray, Lord, that you would work in us through that faith, what is pleasing all love and reliance upon you. And then also the desire that James speaks of so often, uh, to do what is right and good, to prove our faith is genuine by deeds of kindness and love and obedience. And Lord, this book also challenges those of us here who are called to be teachers and leaders to do a good work of using our mouths to convey your truth and to bless people. Confess, Lord, together that uh, to use our tongue rightly is something beyond us. It shows us our weakness. It humbles us if we would reckon the use of all of our words. And, Lord, it's good that we be humbled, because when we're humbled, then we turn to you for grace. And so, Lord, we pray that you would call us to good works and call us to yourself, even as we go about in this hour studying your word. We ask that you be pleased with my words, meditations of each of our hearts, O Lord, our strength, our Redeemer. Amen. Well, today we are indeed looking at uh, the book of James, chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. Last time we were together, we saw that there are three tests of genuine faith. Remember that? Do you remember what the three tests of genuine faith are? Controlling your tongue and caring, to, caring for the widows and the orphans in their distress. That is to say, caring for the poor and for the needy. And the third test is keeping yourself unstained by the world. Now, after that uh, great discussion, or uh, summary rather, of the marks of true visible religion, we noted that James uh, did something that seemed a little bit odd. He got into a discussion of seating patterns of all things in the local synagogue. And for doing things like that, James sometimes gets a bad name. But in fact, if you look at a simple thing like who gets to sit where and how you talk to people as they get their seats in the church, in truth, all of the tests of true faith are there. First of all, you have the sign of true faith, or lack of true faith, in that the person who says to the needy, the poor, sit on the floor by my feet, be a footstool for my feet, is not helping the poor, dishonoring the poor. The one place where the poor might be expected to be treated well, even there, they are disregarded and treated shabbily. Of course, it's worldly to try to curry favor with the rich and the powerful. And 
you're using your tongue to say, here, sit on the floor and to favor the other person. So, in fact, this, this act, which seems to be so trivial, really gets at what true faith is. That is to say, it proves itself even in the, in the little things of life. And then last, we saw that James raises the stakes on this, right? And we saw that while you might say, well, this is just a little thing, it doesn't really matter whether you, uh, you know, get the seating thing right or not, James says, no, if you violate this part of God's will, you haven't just broken one little part of God's will, you've violated the law of God. You're not just breaking a law, you're violating God. And, and so there's no act of disobedience that's a trivial matter. We also talked, did we not? Remember this? About how all the commandments are in, interconnected. Somebody give me a nod of the head. Good. Okay. And so if you lie or you cheat or you steal, uh, you've probably violated somebody in a lot of other ways as well. That section is really very strong. It could even be oppressive, which James uh, seems to uh, be very much aware of. And so his last word, instead of this word of condemnation, so you've broken the law, his last word is mercy triumphs or boasts or exults over judgment. The last word is not the word of judgment. The last is the word of mercy spoken to believers. And now this prepares us for uh, a great passage, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, and one that in some ways is one of the two heart-center passages in James. He's very much continuing the theme of true religion. He's continuing the idea of being a doer of the word and not a hearer only, chapter 1. Verse 22 told us that. It's saying, as you hear the word, help the needy, it's imperative that you actually help the needy and not just wish them well. Uh, he also is looking at the idea expressed back in chapter 1 that we should gaze into the law and do it. And in fact, in chapter 2, we might say James is, is gazing into the law. And here's how. Chapter 2 refers or alludes to Leviticus 19, one of the passages in Leviticus that has the most to do with reformulating the Ten Commandments at several points. In Leviticus 19.18, it says, love your neighbor. And, of course, here we're going to see how we should go about loving our neighbors. And in Leviticus 19, verse 9, it says, don't glean the corners of your field so you can help the needy, which is being discussed in chapter 2. Uh, he also refers to Leviticus 19 and other places, but he seems to be meditating on the law here. There's even a reference to controlling the tongue. Because he's going to talk in just a moment early on in this, in this segment about simply giving nice wishes to poor people. Using your tongue and, and giving nice words that really have no value. So you need to control your tongue. In other words, James 2, 14 to 26 is very much working at the question, do you have real faith? Is your faith manifesting itself? Let's take a look at what he actually says. Chapter 2, verse 14. He opens with a question. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? That question, what good is it, is actually, the word that's used there is actually, what is the profit or what is the benefit? That little idea of what is the benefit is one that was used in ancient rhetoric to help people deliberate about things. Is this course of action 
worth anything or not? What is the benefit of this course of action? If you have faith, or say you have faith, but have no deeds. Now, the next thing that comes up in verse 14 is a little bit shocking because you don't know uh, Greek, and so you're just going to have to trust me on this or get a hold of somebody, or I brought my Greek New Testament. I can show it to you if you have a smattering of Greek. Um, or just want to see it with your own eyes. The next phrase is, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, in the NIV it says, can such faith save him? But in the original, that word such is not there. What he actually says is, can faith save him? Of course, we are used to thinking that, yeah, faith can save anybody. That's the gospel, isn't it? That anybody who believes can be saved. But James is toying with us a little bit, we might say, and prodding us or poking us with this question, can faith save the person who has faith but no works? And the way he expresses it, he expects the answer, no. There is a kind of faith that doesn't save. The kind of faith that has no works. Well, what kind of faith is that? What is real faith anyway? He takes us through this in four little scenarios. The first scenario is the case of a needy brother, verses 15 to 17. And it makes the point that false faith or spurious faith, I love the word spurious. It just seems to, you know, it's so negative. It seems like you're almost spitting as you say it. Spurious faith is ineffective Manward, ineffective toward our fellow man. Now, here's the, the brief vignette describing false faith. Here's a brother, verses 15 through 17, or a sister without clothes, without adequate clothes, that is, you know, dressed in rags or inadequately prepared against the cold, without daily food. If someone says, hey, you know, I hope things go well for you. I hope you get warm. I hope, you know, be well fed. But you don't do anything to help them. There's that question again. What is the benefit? What is the value of that course of action? Of course, the answer is it's worthless. What good is it to be kindly disposed and say to someone who's desperately needy, hey, you know, things will turn around for you someday, I'm sure. And and I hope it's soon. Bye. I'll be praying for you. What is the benefit of that? It doesn't help them at all. In a similar way, James says, now verse 17, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. False faith is like seeing a need but having vague well wishes. And it's ineffective. If you see somebody who's hungry, don't tell them you hope their belly gets filled. Buy them a pizza. That's what the Lord wants you to do. Or a bowl of soup. The second case is the case of knowledge without peace. Knowledge without peace. And this shows that false faith, or spurious faith again, is ineffective Godward. Now, you have to observe this pretty carefully in verse 18. In verse 18, it reads this way. But someone will say, someone who's an advocate of faith that doesn't have works, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Now, if you just watch this carefully, you realize that the wording is not quite what you would expect here. In fact, it's the opposite. What you would expect somebody to say is, I have faith, you have deeds, right? Because that's the issue. 
James is saying you need both. Faith without deeds is no good. And, and maybe the other person you would expect to say, well, listen, you're a, you're a deed kind of person, and I'm a faith kind of person. And James could read it, read it that way, but he kind of turns it around to say, uh, listen, any way you cut it, no matter how you would express it, some people think, some people's response to the call to good works is, it's a gift thing. You know, everybody has different gifts. And some people have the gift of administration, other people have the gift of service, and other people have the gift of encouragement or evangelism or teaching. And that's the way faith and works is. Some people have the gift of knowledge and doctrine, and other people do something about it. Other people are doers. The problem with that thinking is, of course, that if you look carefully over the gift list of the Bible, which we'll do later on in a week or a couple weeks, uh, if you look at the gift lists of the Bible, almost every gift you see, there may be somebody who's highly gifted, but all Christians ought to participate in every gift. Think about it. There's a gift of encouragement, right? Who has the gift of encouragement? Okay, somebody who's just great at lifting people's spirits. You know, a Barnabas-type person. Somebody who just can read people's faces and knows when they're down and says the good word and pats people on the back and all those sorts of things, right? But we're all supposed to encourage each other, aren't we? What did Hebrews say? We saw it a couple weeks ago. Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. So there's this gift of encouragement we all encourage. There's a gift of evangelism, but... We all have to be able to give an account of the faith we have, right? Right? So there's the gift, the high expression, but there's also the modest expression, right? And faith is a gift, actually. But every Christian should have faith. And service is a gift, but every Christian should serve. So the excuse, listen, you have Faith, I have deeds, or I have faith and you have deeds, whichever way you say it, is all wrong because it neglects the fact that we should all participate in belief and in action. Real faith, real faith has both. James replies to this error, says to them, You show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Faith is proven by the deeds. Faith is only known by the life. I will show you my faith by what I do. If somebody, if somebody tells me over and over again, boy, you know, I really know how to cook. I'm a gourmet cook. I really love to cook and get out the pots and pans and, you know, make a mess and really make some great food. After I hear that about five times, I'm inclined to say, so when are you having me over for dinner? You know, let's, let's see some of those, you know, stuffed mushrooms Let's see some poached salmon and some scalloped potatoes. Let's see some asparagus al dente. You know, asparagus is easy to wreck. Do you know what I mean? It, there's lots of ways to ruin asparagus. You've got to be good to make asparagus taste good. Who knows what I'm talking about here? Nobody knows what I'm talking about. All right. You know, if you can do asparagus and peas, if you can make peas taste good, then I admire you. See? Because it's easy to overcook peas and it's easy to undercook peas. So get it right and I'll believe you. James says, you, can't, you say you have faith. Come on, prove it. Prove it with some deeds. He goes a little bit farther and says, you believe that there is one God. 
you have orthodox ideas about God, good. Let me tell you, you're right up there with the demons. They've got some orthodox theology. They believe there's one God. They believe he sees all, that he's a judge of the earth. And they also believe that they're going to be destroyed on account of it. Orthodox ideas without living faith. I'm what you would call an adult convert to Christianity. I became a Christian at the age of 18 as a freshman in college. And I clearly remember having this kind of faith as a teenager. I believe there was one God. I believe that Jesus Christ was his son. And I believe that by believing him you were saved. And I believe it was important to live a good life out of faith. I knew all the theology. And I didn't believe a lick of it. And I was afraid. I thought about God as little as I possibly could. And that wasn't little enough. When I was 15 and 16 and 17 years old. It is very possible to have orthodox theology. I'll put it to you this way. I could have led someone to Christ when I was 16. I know, I know a lot of other people in that, in that position. They've hung around churches, and they know enough theology. They could actually give the gospel with clarity, sufficient clarity that someone, if God was working in, his, in an unusual way, could be pleased to use those words. But they don't believe it, and they have no peace with God. They tremble like the demons. So, false faith, spurious faith, is ineffective Godward. 30 talks about the case of difficult obedience, and that is the case of Abraham. To prove again, now positively, that faith without good works is useless, he gives another case, and that is the case of true faith, which is effective Godward. And we come to the case of Abraham. Faith acts effectively in the case of his near sacrifice of Isaac. Now, you understand the life of Abraham and the central test in his life. At the age of 75, his wife was 65. Uh, the promise came that they would have a son, right? Then they waited. How long did they wait for a child? 25 years. the age of 190, their child was born, when all reason and experience would have said that Abraham, reproductively, and his wife, Sarah, were as good as dead, they continued to believe. We might say even um, that every time they had conjugal relations, it was an act of faith that God would do what he said. Of course, Abraham stumbled. But fundamentally, during those years, he was faithful. Until then, that, that dreaded day, that terrible day, when God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him on the mountain, I will show you. Now, when Abraham was willing to offer that child, and, you know, there are a couple of clues about his age. How old would he have been? How old did he have to be when that event occurred? You know, what are the clues as to his age? Not, you know, exact years, but rough age. He was able to carry the wood is one. A couple of people, if you say, and there's something else. He was able to reason with his father. He was able to say, we got wood, we've got fire. But where is the sacrifice? So we have, to, we have to depict the scene, him being, let's just say, at least close to 10 years old, to be the logical one to carry the wood and ask, you know, my, at least mildly sophisticated questions. He might have been, I guess, you know, if you argue with me, I'd say maybe he was 9, maybe. Maybe he was 14 or 15, maybe 12. But now he's, you know, they waited 25 years. Now they've waited you know, 10 or 12 more, and he's almost grown up. He's half grown up. Maybe he's 
15 even. And now God says, I'll take him away from you. Now, the, the book of Hebrews, as we know, says that Abraham believed that if necessary, God could raise his son Isaac from the dead when he offered him up. You remember that little dialogue he has with the servants where he says, wait here and we will come back to you, expressing his faith there in that place. Now, Hebrews describes this in very strong language. It says, here's one more piece of evidence that faith without works is useless. Wasn't our, verse 21, our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did? The, the Greek reads, wasn't he justified? Wasn't his, maybe we could translate it this way. Wasn't he considered righteous? Wasn't he justified by what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And then verse 22, you see that his faith and his works, this is a literal translation, his faith and his works were working together and his faith was brought to completion. It's a very literal translation. And in fact, if... Uh, how many of you know the word monerg words monergism and synergism? How many of you know those words? How do you have no idea what I'm talking about? Okay, very briefly. Um, monergism is the idea that, that monos is one, and ergos means work. You've heard of ergonomic chairs and things like that? They're chairs that let you work more efficiently. Er ergos means work. So monergism means... Uh, that salvation occurs by one working, that is to say, by God working. Monergism is the idea that God saves. And synergism is the idea that we're saved by mixing or by two working together. You've, of course, all heard of synergy. Um, synergism is the idea that mankind and God have to work together, that it's a cooperative venture, that God alone can't save. We have to help them out. A little bit. Synergism is, uh, you know, you'll get to this in one of your classes, is generally considered to be heretical. God saves. But here in this place, I'm going a long way to get to a Greek word. Here in this place, the word is actually, has to do with, is the word related? It gives us synergism. Sunerge. His faith and his works were working together so that his faith was brought to completion. Faith comes to maturity or full expression only when it works. Real faith must work. Faith hasn't come into its own if there are no works. Then verse 22, verse 23 goes on to, to pound it home just a little bit more. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, or it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is to say, you remember, you remember when Abraham was first justified or reckoned righteous? Do you know where it was in his history? What chapter we're in? First question, back you up a little bit. Where did Isaac, where was Abraham nearly sacrificing Isaac? What chapter was that? Genesis chapter 22 is correct. All right. When does God declare Abraham righteous? Genesis 15 is the correct answer. You could turn to Genesis 15 with me for a moment and, and look at this to see what James is expressing a little bit more clearly. 
Genesis 15. Now, again, we're keeping in our mind that it's in chapter 22 that Abraham offers his son on the altar. Uh, Now, chapter 15 occurs roughly at the midpoint between the time when Abraham heard the promise that he would have a child and the time when the child was actually born. We could say maybe he's 85 years old or 82 years old. He does say 85. After this, 15.1 of Genesis, the word of the Lord came to Abram. His name was still Abram here. Uh, Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. Abram says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. That's his leading servant. Basically, what Abraham is doing here is back-talking to God. God says, I'm your shield and your great reward. And Abraham says, oh, yeah? Then how's come you haven't given me the thing that I've been waiting for the most for the last ten years? If you're my shield and my great reward, where's that son you've been talking about? And Abraham said, you've given me no children. A servant of my household will be my heir. Verse 4. The Lord who's always willing to get into a serious discussion with anybody, said, you're wrong. Eliezer of Damascus will not be your heir. A son coming from your own body will be your heir. Then he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And went outside and looked at the stars. It's not like here it is in St. Louis. You understand this, right? You're out in St. Louis, a nice clear day. You can see 17, night, of course, I mean, you can see 17 stars, and if you look carefully, three of them are planes, and one is a satellite. <laughs> That's on a good day. I'm talking about going out to the Rockies and getting out there at, at I hit a chord there, uh, going out at, you know, 2 in the morning, climbing halfway up a hillside somewhere. You're starting off, off at 8,000 feet. You climb up to 9,000, and you find a little clearing, and you line your back, Okay. And if you can't get to the Rockies, you can go to maybe the Smoky Mountains and do that and just look at the stars. Get away from all the light pollution, all the industrial pollution, and it's dazzling. It takes your breath away. And God said, that is what your offspring will be like. And Abraham, verse 6, says, believed God, and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. That's 15.6. So that's the day when he was accounted righteous before God by faith. We would say he's just he was justified by faith on that day. But James is is almost playing with that formulation here in order to correct the misconception. In verse twenty three he says, The scripture was fulfilled that says and now he quotes fifteen six, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what he's saying is It's as though our justification or the justification of James has different phases to it. There's the initial phase, and then there's a later time when when that word of justification to Abraham is vindicated or proven to be true when he demonstrates his faith by the deed of offering up Isaac. Let me get you to share with me just for a minute. Give me your opinion a little bit. Uh, justification. There are three time frames possible, right? There's the past, and there's the present, and, of course, the future. Where does justification occur? In the past, in the present, or the future? 
All right, how many of you want to say the past? Hey, why do you say it's the past? Okay, people say, uh, you know, justification is the thing in the past because that's when Jesus died to atone for our sins. You can also reason that it's in the past another way. What's the other way we can say it's in the past? Okay, we, we, we look back to the day when we professed faith in Christ, and we say, on that day, I was justified, right? How many of you know the word ordo salutis, order of salvation? Raise your hand high so I know. Okay, uh, the rest of you don't know, so let me give you a very brief background on this as well. Uh, the ordo salutis is a concept that says there is an order to salvation. It starts off with God's divine plan and all eternity. You think of Romans 8.28. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And we have then, you know, once you're justified, then you're adopted in the family of God, right? And you are growing in grace. That's called sanctification. And if you keep on growing, that's called perseverance. And at the end, we come to glory or glorification. That's the order of salvation. When we think in those terms, how many of you know that now? It's familiar to you now that I mention it. Okay. When we think in those terms, we then think of justification as something that lies in our past. Because now, here I am growing in the Christian faith. And it all started. I'm in, I'm in the sanctification phase, right? You know that word, right? I'm in the persevering phase. I'm in the growth phase. So my, my justification is in the past. So that's one way we can look at it in terms of the work of Christ, which is past, on one, on one account. And also, we look to the day when we professed faith. But I heard some other people saying that they're not so sure they want to say it's in the past. So who wants to argue for another time frame? Future. Who said that? All right, why is it in the future? Okay, it has to do with our judgment. Very good. That's right. When will we hear the words, you are righteous, you are just, you are exonerated from your sin? When, when will we hear that with our own ears? Whatever that means on the judgment day. You know, don't get into when the resurrection body starts, okay? But, you know, when will we actually hear it? It's on the judgment day, right? And we'll all be arrayed before the throne. So, in a sense, our justification lies in the future. On the judgment day, the day the Bible calls that great day. The day of Jesus' return. Right? All right. Can anybody make the case that justification is present? A present reality? I can. Okay. Make the case. Okay, positionally, I'm justified now, every day. Anything else? Okay, on an ongoing basis, our sin is forgiven. But there's also something else. That those are both true statements. Positionally, we're justified day by day. We're, we're forgiven day by day. We're right with God day by day. There's one more thing, and that is that every time we perform a good work, it verifies or proves that we're right with God. That's what's going on in verse 23. Uh, back, in, uh, in, back to turn back to James. I'm going to look at it. That odd phrasing that we could stumble over. You see that Scripture was fulfilled when it said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He goes on to say, you see that a person is justified by what he does... 
and not by faith alone, verse 24 says. Now, wait a minute, you say. I thought that's, we were justified by faith alone. James says, no, you're also justified by what you do, verse 24. Meaning, every time we perform a good deed, it verifies, it demonstrates that we indeed belong to God, that we're right with God, that his life is at work in us. It, we could put it another way. We could say that God's word, you are righteous with me, is vindicated or proven to be true every time a believer performs a good work that flows from their faith. God is not liable to the charge of saving people by a legal fiction. But in fact, we, we demonstrate that we belong to Christ. When we're justified, in a sense what happens is that God sees us not as we are, but as in ourselves, but as we are in Christ. He sees our sins covered by Christ's righteousness and by his sacrifice. He sees Jesus' works, his perfect obedience, reckoned to our account. Well, somebody would say, that's a fiction. But no, because we, our life really is in Christ. God sees us in Christ, and we really are in Christ. Our life really is hidden in Christ, as Paul says. And the proof that our life is really hidden in Christ is those deeds. They could only come, come to pass by faith spontaneously expressing itself in good deeds. I know you have some questions about this, and I'll be happy to take them. Let me just keep on going for a little bit to the fourth case, the case of the good pagan who demonstrates that real faith is effective manward. Abraham is an illustration of faith that works, maybe even a logical one, we might say. The Jews viewed Abraham as a hero of the faith and as a a deeply righteous man, maybe the most righteous man who ever lived, some of them said. So that's a logical choice, but what kind of a choice is Rahab to demonstrate living faith? I mean, look how bad she comes off compared to Abraham. Here's Abraham, a father of Israel, and Rahab, a Canaanite woman. And here's Abraham, a noble male patriarch. And here's Rahab, a disreputable female prostitute. But yet, I would submit to you that Rahab is an outstanding example of real faith. In fact, a perfect example of how real faith is never simply an intellectual conversion, never simply holding orthodox ideas about God, which is what James was opposing. Because if she merely had orthodox ideas about God, she would have been destroyed with the rest of everybody else in Jericho, right? If she had simply thought to herself, you know, I think the God of the Israelites is the true God and very powerful. What would have happened to her? But she acted on her face so that when the spies showed up, she did something about it. Now, you may say, well, what did she do? She told a lie. Uh, indeed, it's true. But she acted she believed that God is the real God, and she put her allegiance with God, with God's people. That little thing of helping the spies hide was a way of, of proving that she had transferred her allegiance 
from her own pagan gods and pagan race and was siding with Israel, the God of Israel and His people. We could put it this way. She didn't do much. You know, Abraham did this spectacular thing. And here's this woman who basically tells a little, you know, story, a little subterfuge, and helps a couple men run off. But she did what had to be done. She did what lay before her to do. And it made a difference. Her lives were spared. She demonstrated that her faith was real. What is James all about? Uh, James is speaking to people who grew up in church. Today, I'll put it this way. And grew up in Sunday school and are content with holding orthodox ideas. In his own day, of course, people didn't grow up in Sunday school because there wasn't a Sunday school. That was invented in the 19th century. Not by the apostles, just in case anybody would be shocked by that idea. There were people back then who were content with orthodox theology, orthodox doctrines. So what he's trying to do is say, that's not enough. That's not a genuine faith. He's speaking to comfortable Christians. One thing that you will sometimes hear about ministry is that it's important for those who are engaged in Christian work to comfort the afflicted, right? But it's also important to know how to afflict the comforted. That is to say, those who are falsely comfortable. Those who think, because they're decent and nice to their neighbors, because they've been baptized, catechized, and sanitized from most major sins, they're all right with God. And they're not. They're not. Real faith shows itself in radical good deeds. Rahab didn't do much. She's not a hero. She hit a couple men and let them get off. But she is a perfect example of the fact that mere intellectual assent to ideas about God is not enough. She did what had to be done. Hey, what I'm going to do, let me, let, me, uh, let me press on a little bit more so we uh, stay at least vaguely on schedule and uh, talk about the consistency of James with the rest of the Bible. Uh, some people have a hard time with James, not because they don't understand uh, what we've just been going over, but because he sounds quite different from Paul. For example, Paul in Romans 3.28 says, A man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's Romans 3.28. Or Galatians 2.16, No man is justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds very, very different, doesn't it? It sounds almost like a contradiction with James chapter 2, verses 21 and 24. So let's take you know, at least 10 minutes to unpack that and see how, in fact, they cohere. First of all, the entire New Testament agrees that real faith must produce good works. This is not just something that James says. Jesus, you know, is the one who started it. He said, by their fruit you will know them, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 to 20. And he said it's also vain to say, you know, Lord, Lord, if you don't have a genuine faith in him. He said that on the last day, a person will be judged. You know that famous scene when all are arrayed before Jesus? And he says, I was 
hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And in another group he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. What he's saying is that on the last day, he will judge people according to their works. Paul says the same thing. We must all render account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. On the last day, our deeds will be brought out and will be the ground of judgment. Now, what does that mean? What it means is not the deeds in themselves, but rather that the deeds that come from faith will be used on the last day. If your faith is real, Jesus says, it will constantly, necessarily express itself in good deeds so that they'll be manifest before all the world. And one of the, one of the most important ways of, uh, to, to look at this passage, Matthew 25, is to realize that the, that the believers, those who will go to the right hand, will say, Lord, when were you hungry? When were you thirsty? When were you in prison? We don't remember that. Well, of course, of course they don't, because the righteous do, the, do what is good naturally. It's like good fruit growing on a good tree. It's like good words naturally coming from a good mouth. We don't even know we're doing what's good because it's just, it's just us. We're just being ourselves. So it's not some good works that we put on a pedestal that causes us to be judged, but it's the life of Christ. John chapter 4, John chapter 15, we could think of. It's, it's the life of Christ like a well springing up from within. It's like, it's like uh, you know, being vines on you know, branches on a vine. You can't help but grow grapes and give the fruit when the life of Christ is in you. And in that sense, Jesus says, good deeds are necessary. Because if the life is there, then the good deeds will necessarily come. And if they don't come, it shows there's no life there. So that's what Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels. He says it in John, in John chapter 8, verse 39. He says, if you're the children of Abraham, do the deeds, do the works of Abraham. John 8, 39. And he says that fruitless branches will be cut off, but those who abide in the vine bear fruit, keep God's commands, and show love for one another. John chapter 15. And Paul says the same thing. People sometimes say, well, you know, James is stressing that we're justified by, you know, a faith that works, and he stresses works, and Paul doesn't stress works. Actually, there are 50 times, or almost 50 times, a couple passages debatable, almost 50 times where Paul says that it is necessary for a Christian to produce good works. Let me just give you a handful of them, uh, some of the ones that you may know. In 1 Corinthians 3.13, Paul says, each person's work must be manifest. Galatians 6.4, he says, each person should test his own work. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, you have to keep the whole law. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians 5.3. It's necessary to keep the whole law. They both praise the law that's royal and perfect. and gives liberty in James. And Paul says it's spiritual and holy and just and good. So we produce deeds of the law. Both of them say, chapter 1 of James, chapter 2 of Romans, 2.13 of Romans says, not hearers, but doers of the law will be considered righteous. Follow with me in, in Romans 2.13. Notice how similar... Romans 2.13 sounds to James. James 2.13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Hear how similar that is to, to James? Or, or here's another one from 
Paul, Romans chapter 2, verses 25 to 27, sounds so similar to James 2.14 when he says that what counts or profits is obedience. He's talking about Jews who have pride in their knowledge, he says, or in their status as Jews. 2.25 of Romans. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you'll become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? One who is circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. You've got to keep the law, Romans says. Your theology, your theological knowledge is not enough. And maybe the crowning passage of them all is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. We love to quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you're saved, right? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. And that's where we usually end our quotation. But then he goes on to say, for we are God's workmanship, remember this? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul is every bit as insistent on good works as James is. And we could go through, we could go really through the entire New Testament and demonstrate this in Peter and John and Revelation and all the rest. Another way of looking at this is to try to get the perspective of, of what each author is after. What problems are they trying to correct? What are, they, what are they working on? When Paul says, man is justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, what Paul is addressing is the person who asks, how can one get into the kingdom? How can one be saved? That's his question. Do you, as some people say, do you need to be circumcised? Do you need to observe the food laws? Do you need, in order to be saved, to become a Jew first? And Paul's answer is, no. All you have to do is believe. No works of the law. James' question is, how shall I treat these people who believe since they grew up with the faith and have been trained in the faith, that they're right with God. That it's enough to have orthodox ideas. We might say, Paul is writing for people like the Wesleys. You know the story of the Wesleys? You know the story? John Wesley, who had a holiness club, used to get up and pray. What was it, three hours or two hours? I forget. Now, two or three hours a day, you know, sort of from uh, 5 in the morning or 4 in the morning till 7 in the morning, something like that. And then he would go and distribute food and clothes and medicine throughout the city. And then he would start his regular work, his regular ministry. And he did that for a number of years in London. Then he went to America to convert the Indians. And he began to preach. And he not only spoke to the Indians, but he was a skilled man. And so pretty soon he was preaching in the church in uh, Virginia, in the governor's family was there listening to him week by week and they were very impressed with him and the governor's daughter got engaged to him and the governor's daughter broke it off with him and he preached a sermon about how she shouldn't have done that and then the governor said it's time for you to leave 
And he said, no, I haven't even started. And he said, no, it's time for you to leave. And so he was sent back to England. And as he went back, there was a storm at sea. And there was a real danger, so it seemed that the ship and those on it would be lost. There were some Moravians over in a corner. They were praying. They were singing. They were rejoicing. And he walked over them and said, how can you be so happy, so cheerful on this day when you may die? And they said, well, if we die, we'll go to be with the Lord. And he said, he wrote this in his journal, he said, what more have, how can they be so sure, what more have they done than I have done? See, that's who Paul is writing for, people with that misguided question. What good deed do I need to do in order to be saved? And with that question on his mind, he went back to London, you know the story, and went to a church at night where they were doing. There are a couple things in this story that you should never do. One thing you shouldn't do is denounce the governor's family in a sermon. You know? <laughs> and you also really shouldn't denounce anybody's family in a sermon and preach against one person and say you shouldn't have done that. It just doesn't work. It's not right, and it doesn't work. Like most things that aren't right, it doesn't work either. But then besides that, there's another thing that you shouldn't do, but this one did work, uh, and that was somebody was reading a 230-year-old sermon. Now, the good thing is it was a really good sermon. And it was a sermon that Luther spoke, really actually a preface to his commentary in the book of Romans. And while that was being read, Wesley understood that you get right with God by faith. Not by works. What's the place of works in getting right with God? There is no place. You see. But once we are right with God, that's what James is saying. You must produce works. And if there are no works, then it indicates that you're not right with God. That is the thesis of James. And really, the entire New Testament, of course, agrees with that. The entire New Testament teaches that. I have a little chart for you, which uh, you see in your notes, four views of salvation and works. You see that on the page. Um, view number one is that works produce salvation. That's, nobody teaches that in the church. The second view that a lot of people might go for initially is, well, faith, the arrow means produces or results in. Uh, faith, that produces salvation. And in a sense, that's true. But the third and the fourth clarify a little bit. Some would say it's faith plus works that produce salvation. But Paul and James and the entire New Testament and the entire Old Testament all say, no, the best formulation is faith produces salvation plus good works. The works are necessary afterward. Afterward. Good works are necessary not in order to be saved, but they are necessary. In order to be saved, no. But because we're saved, yes. That's the place of good works. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. 
Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. Resourcesforlifeonline.com.